This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by New Relic and Epsigon. This week, I chat with Joe Emerson about optimizing for maintainability. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 73. I'm Jeremy Daly, and this is Serverless Chats. Today, I'm chatting with Joe Emerson. Hey, Joe, thanks for joining me. Hey, thank you for having me. So you are the co-founder and CTO of Branch Insurance. Uh, I'd love it if you could tell the audience a little bit about your background and what Branch Insurance does. Absolutely. Uh, So I am a serial technical entrepreneur. Uh, Branch is my sixth adventure. Uh, and Branch is a home and auto insurance uh, company, and we also sell renters and umbrella. And there are two things that make us completely unique in the United States. One of them is we sell, we sell the home and auto as a bundle much more easily than anybody else. So really anywhere else you would go to buy the home and auto bundle, you'd have to buy one and then the other, and it would take you somewhere between 45 minutes and two hours or maybe a week. Uh, And you'd get a lot of fake prices along the way. You'd get like, well, we think it's about this. Okay, I need more information Then it's about this. So we will sell you the home and auto together. And for most people, we just need your name and address to give you a real price that you can buy instantly. Awesome. Well, so the the thing I think that is uh, probably the most interesting to the listeners is the fact that branch insurance is entirely serverless. It is, and and this is actually the third company I've started fully serverlessly, um, and uh, Branch from the beginning has been built on Amazon's AppSync service. Uh, uses Lambda, DynamoDB, CloudFront, um, and a bunch of other third-party services that we love. Awesome. Um, all right, so I have been watching your presentations. Uh, I've seen you at ServerlessConf. I've seen you at a couple of other conferences. And one of the things that I, I always thought was fascinating is how you're always recommending like some third party service. Like you've got a third party service for everything. Um, now, obviously, some of those are, are AWS services, um, but then you use other things like BigQuery and Stripe and these other ones and then all these other different things. And I was trying to think of something clever. And we always talk about stuff like um, serverless first or static first or whatever. And I was thinking that your approach was very much so like third party first. But then after talking to you about it, um, it's more about optimizing for maintainability than it is just using some third-party service. So what what is that that you do, especially at Branch, to optimize for maintainability? Yeah, we think about optimizing for maintainability having two central categories. The first is the less you have to maintain, the easier it is to maintain. And so in that bucket goes things like, uh, code is a liability, so less code to maintain is easier to maintain. Or running VMs and containers and having DevOps as a you know core competency that you need uh, is if you don't need it, right? You run serverlessly, or you need less of it, uh, then that's also easier to maintain. And then there's another bucket, which is how do we not uh, be blockers for all of the other departments in the company? And so uh, we, we constantly ask this question of how do we empower other departments to go uh, do what they need to do without talking to tech, without talking to product? Right. 
Right. And I love that idea of um, empowering other uh, other departments. And, and one of the things that uh, I often see when I'm collecting links for my newsletter is people who uh, write these posts that say they're using Google, for example, as I'm sorry, Google Sheets as a uh, as a backend database for something, and and some people criticize it, but for the right application, it makes a lot of sense because then someone can actually go in, um, somebody who doesn't have the ability to query a MySQL database or go into DynamoDB or something like that, can go in and just manipulate some some uh, you know cells in a in a database, and it gives them the ability to run some business process, which can be really really effective. Yeah, it's it is fantastic. Uh, and one of the companies I started, uh, which I did as a sort of a weekend project for a friend, was an Angular app that sends a bunch of data to uh, a Google Sheet for all these calculations. And since twenty, you know, since I built that in like twenty fifteen, ninety nine percent of the business logic of that application has been uh, the main founder on that project making changes in Google Sheets. Uh, and so he's a, he onboards a new customer, he sets up their logic in Google Sheets, and it does everything that they need to do. Which is amazing, right? And then there's so many other so many other applications that you can do that with, um, you know, that uh, that make it very very simple for. I mean, that's when you think of things like maybe Airtable or even integrating things. I know uh, in the past I've integrated into uh, you know services like Asana, right, and just tie into the API so that yeah. you already have those interfaces built because that's one of the hardest things to do sometimes as a developer is to build a really good admin, and if that's already built in for yeah. you, I mean, you're you're off to the races. Yeah, and I, I think people too often uh, will will disregard using uh, like a service like Zendesk, which is this kind of amazing Swiss Army knife. They'll disregard it because they'll say, "Well, you know, it's I can envision a world in which we're going to want to do this thing, and it won't do that properly." But the problem is, you're a lot better off getting getting off the ground, getting things going, having a system that works. And then discovering what things really matter, because I agree with you that probably you're going to run into cases where this third party service like SaaS tool with an API doesn't completely solve what you want. But the bigger problem is what you think that is at the beginning is definitely right. not going to be what it actually doesn't do later. And so, you know, we, we live in a world where we don't have enough people who are constantly thinking more than 50% of the things that we think we need to build in the way we're going to build them actually aren't going to work. We're going to build them. Right. We're going to put them out there and like they're not going to be usable. They're not going to do what we need to do. We're wrong about these things. And so there's such a it's so much better to get it out experience it, even if you know that it's only 60, 70% of like, you know, ideal, um, because that information that you'll get will enable you to make much better decisions. And often what you'll find is when you weigh the priorities, you'll say like, well, you know, Zendesk isn't perfect, but I'd much prefer to keep using Zendesk and use my development time on this other thing that I now realize is critical, you know, for our success. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, and that's one of the things too about uh, I mean, that I love about serverless and just being able to kind of string some things together quickly to get a prototype up and running because you you do not know uh, what, you know, what is going to actually, never mind what's going to work, but what's going to be used. I can't tell you how many times I've implemented some process or some system that just doesn't get adopted by the organization because either the, the workflow is too complicated or whatever, but again, being able to test that quickly um, is, uh, is, a really, is a really powerful thing. Absolutely, yeah. 
Yeah. So, um, so one of the problems when you are building new applications, right, and you're trying to, you know, as you said, optimize for maintainability, um, one of the things you need to maintain is, or what you need to perform maintenance, I guess, uh, is, is people, right? So you need to have engineers or software devs that, that can go back and they can look at that code, they can continue to upgrade it if they need to. So how do you make those choices? I know you have a software development guide at, uh, at Branch um, that you, you kind of put everybody through those paces. So what does that guide look like? You had mentioned you know, optimizing for maintainability, but what else, what else is part of that? Uh, it, it's, it's really a, uh, it starts off completely on optimizing for maintainability and understanding that when you have multiple choices to make uh, in the world, um, you you choose the one that's going to be easier to maintain uh and, and and even if it like disagrees with uh whatever you know whoever luminary on twitter says to do uh, i mean recently we had a discussion about whether the right way to convert uh strings to numbers uh in javascript is i guess the preferred way is a plus sign in front of the variable name you know but you can just you know use the number function uh, which is just much more readable and so like that you know we were like i don't care if you know, so-and-so says you should use the right. plus sign, like number, number, and then in parentheses is a much easier way to read it. Um, and then the rest of the document, uh, the rest of the software development uh, guide really talks about two things. One of them is, you know, we practice Agile, and I think Agile in the way that I have heard Alistair Coburn, who's one of the signatories of the Agile Manifesto, um, thinks about it, um, which is, uh, you know, every week we come in peace to ship software and every other week we do a retro to figure out how to do it better and nothing else is sort of set. So you talk to a lot of people about Agile and they'll say, oh, well, we're Agile. We do Scrum and every two weeks we do a release and we do a demo on this day and this. And like, you know, literally number one is people over processes. And like, if you just described your Agile as a bunch of processes that aren't changing with ceremonies at the same time, like that's not Agile. Like you have a pro, I mean, this is process right. over people. Um, right. And so so part of part of the software development guide after maintainability really goes into helping understand like what we're trying to figure out how to do this better. We don't know how to do it uh, or, or we, we have an idea on how to do it, but we're not saying we're perfect on it. And so we need everyone's input. And so we use retro as such a critical um, thing to do to figure out how to how to do all these things better. Um, and then and then the rest of the rest that we talk about is uh, in the guide is really about how what's most important for you as a developer is to seek uh how is to think about how you could be doing things better um how you could be shipping software better what tools you could be using to be more effective um and uh we don't do enough of this right we, we actually hire people into jobs like oracle dba which is just like if you ever wanted to get rid of oracle like you're probably gonna have to get rid of all the people who have the vendor's name and their title first. Right. Right. <laughs> um, but I mean, there's, you know, there, there, we have this problem where people, Ben Keo talks about this, right. Where people identify with as, as experts in, in the tools they use. And that's really bad. I mean, you should identify in being able to ship software. It shouldn't really, and, and you should identify as someone who can learn things. I mean, this is the most common debates I'm having over Twitter these days are really where, you know, people want to say the right language is the language you know and like okay but like what that says is you can't learn and like the reality is if you're in if you're if your job is figuring out how to ship software and you're like i'm never going to learn another language or another framework like i'm only going to use the stuff i know like you're going to be bad at it i'm sorry like you might be good out of college but like oh my god if you're still using the thing you learned in college and you're 35 or you're 40 like 
you know, I mean, you're not you're not doing the best thing. <laughs> I mean, it's just true. And so so the rest of what we talk about in this guide is like, you know, it's important to learn and it's important to treat people very kindly and with respect. And so it's it, it, there's a lot of discussion actually about how to do a proper code review. Like you, this is how you review someone's code. This is how we make sure we have great code, but we right. we don't make we don't make people feel bad. Yeah. No, yeah. I think that's <laughs> I think that's a that's something too where again as people as people grow as developers and they start using new things, it's very very easy, especially moving into serverless. There's just there's a lot of information out there, but it's a whole different way to think about software development. So it's very easy for people to make mistakes or to do something wrong. Um, and again, having a team that doesn't criticize but just helps you, you know what I mean, and helps you ship better software, I think is a uh, is a hugely important a hugely important piece of it. Yeah, I, I think about it a little a bit as like how do you get to a world where everyone is relentlessly trying to do things better and is dissatisfied with like or is willing to be dissatisfied with what they just did but how do you do that in a world where everyone respects everyone and treats everyone as humans who are great and wonderful people and so we're on and how do you separate those two things right uh and that's that's magic when you can do that well it's certainly not on hacker news i can tell you that no <laughs> no <laughs> Um, all right. So with with your this idea of, you know, op optimizing for maintainability, you mentioned this idea, you know, that code is a liability. The more things you write, the more code that has to go be maintained, the more that has to be upgraded later, maybe or whatever. Uh, and of course, you have potential issues with third, using third party tools, right? Like they might change something and maybe there's a breaking change or whatever, and you, and you have to go back and change your code. Um, but just in terms of that you know, sort of technical debt that builds up. How do you how do you tell your developers to kind of think about technical debt as they're building something? Yeah, we I mean we have we have no roadmap, essentially no deadlines and unlimited refactoring. Mm -hmm. Um and so um we tend not to do a lot of we, we do have some like hey we should refactor this when we get back to it. Um but there's a lot I mean you know it is a very friendly environment in which, um, you know, if you as a developer are going to work on something and you say, hey, I really think I need to spend you know, a couple of weeks refactoring something before I get into this, that that's never we're never going to say no to that. Um, now, you know, a lot of times there'll be a discussion about the best way to do that. And that doesn't happen with any sort of high frequency, but it's not infrequent that you'll get, OK, now that I'm going to tackle this thing, I'm going to go ahead and do this refactor, you know, as part of it. Um, and I think that's really it is, again, this is maintainability, right? We say we optimize for maintainability. If I, you know, if we don't refactor things that we think need to be refactored, it's not going to be maintainable. Right. Um, I was just going to touch briefly on the, on, you, you mentioned sort of like third party breaking changes. You know, I, my experience is that that doesn't happen with a high frequency. I, Mm -hmm. I, I tend to find that the third party services, either APIs or SaaS that we use, um, tend to be way better at change management than we would be internally. Right. right? That's right. Um, I mean, they, it tends to be, I, I tend to think of all of them as like, what if I had a bunch of super expensive engineers who were like really good, documented things really well, had amazing right. change management, amazing uptime, and I only paid them by use of, of the thing in a business context. Like, wouldn't that be great? Shouldn't I do that for everything? And right. so uh, so I tend not to have, I mean, you know, it happens from time to time, but I, I never, like, 
anybody who is telling me like, well, we, we, we would never use Algolia over Elasticsearch because we're worried about breaking changes. Like that person's just making that up. Like that's not right. a problem. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I would l worry less about, you know, breaking changes, but maybe new features that are added, things like that, that you're going to have to go and potentially do that. But no, I totally agree with you. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that's nice about having a SaaS company is they are focused on that one specific problem, that business domain, and that's their job. Whereas when you have a team of developers, especially if you're a small team, just maybe four or five, you know, four or five of you or something working on a project, you have to, you know, if you're building all the stuff yourself, you're across a lot of different disciplines. Um, so with the third parties though, so obviously if I said, okay, is it, should I have, um, you know, Algolia or should I use Elasticsearch uh, and should I build my own search there or should I just, you know, use uh, Algoria or what? I, Al, yeah, Algolia. Um, you say, okay, that is the easier choice because it is easier to maintain that. Obviously third party are going to, uh, third party services are going to be easier to maintain. So what is the deciding factor? Because why wouldn't you just choose third party services for everything? I mean, in general, I do choose third party services for everything. <laughs> I mean, my... My, my general view is prove to me that this third party service won't work. Um, now, you know, again, I, I have a very strong difference, though, between a third party service that's serverless and one that isn't. Mm -hmm. um, and so you can find third party services where they want you to go into like the AWS marketplace and run it on a VM. And that's not serverless. And I'm not interested in that. You know, or like, oh, it's an open source project, run it yourself. And again, I'm not interested in that. Um, and so, um, you know, but when it's serverless, when it, and, and my definition, my short definition of serverless is it's not my uptime. Uh, like I literally can't influence uptime. I mean, beyond I could like put bad configuration or bad code in. Um, but, you know, but but like if this if some server fails, like it's not on me to bring it back up. Um, and so I think if you can have a serverless third party uh, API, I think your default should be use that unless you can prove that you shouldn't use it. Right, right. All right. So then what about proof of maintainability, right? So we can say, oh, it's easier to maintain this code because I'm using some third party service or it's easier to maintain because, again, it's in Algolia versus Elasticsearch. Um, how do you actually prove that, though? Um, I, well, so the easiest way to prove like maintainability of your code base, like does it have like terrible technical debt or do you have terrible other issues with it or bad or, or some issues with it, I think is it, two things that you can do uh, all the time, which is one, if every developer has his or her own Amazon account or whatever provider you're using account and the and you can sort of check out the code and run a command and deploy it into a fresh environment. And it works just the same there, like everyone has production. And you can onboard a new developer, ideally a junior developer, um, and they can start being productive as a member of the team very quickly, right? And they can, and like, I don't know, within say six weeks, they can kind of understand front end, back end, you know, how to in commit infrastructure as code. You know, they get all of those things and you give them tickets, they can work in them. You know, that's maintainable code. Um, you know, I think part of your question was also like, how do you know, um, how would you know if let's say you used a really bad third party service and like, it was really terrible. Um, you know, I think, I think it's again, pretty easy to ask, you know, what percentage of your downtime or what percentage of bugs, um, do you have, uh, that are relating to these things, right? Like, I mean, you'll, you'll know, right. If there's a lot of pain, you'll know. I, I, 
back in 2012 at a prior company, we used a recurring billing service. And uh, we had we had it we we had at this point in time with third party services, we would do random testing where we would just hit their development endpoints randomly. And this service um, would return 500 errors about every fifth day out of their dev service. Uh, and the lead developer was like, I don't feel comfortable using this service. And so we, we contacted them and they said, oh, it's totally normal for that to happen. And we were like, we totally disagree that you, like you, like a 500 server should be a defect. Um, and so, and we, we were a really squeaky wheel about it. They, they had a couple outages. We complained about those and we got fired as a customer, um, for, uh, for bringing that up. Uh, I, I, I got woke up one like September morning to get an email. that was like, you have 30 days to get off our service because we don't, <laughs> you're like, you're, an, you're, you're an obnoxious twit. Um, and, uh, I mean, the, you know, the joke was sort of on them because six months later, due to poor engineering, they lost all of their customers' data. And like their, their whole business was a recurring billing service um, that, uh, that was supposed to store all the credit card information so you didn't have to be PCI compliant. And so, I mean, I, I mean, it, you know, who knows? I don't know what was causing the 500 server error. They, they had a poor database replication design where they replicated a, a, an, an error in the master. Um, uh, but... You know, I mean, I, I, I've always relied on that at this point, like, right, like if you do regular testing and you understand the services you use, um, you can get a sense of which ones are good or not if you're actually using them. Um, and so, the, the, you know, my past is like a history of services I will never use again because of bad experiences with them. But like, you know, we found, you know, we discovered it. Right. But I mean, that's a that's a risk, too, though. Right. I mean, as soon as you you use a third party service. Um, a lot of that control is out of your hands, right? So how do you how do you mitigate against that when you're integrating with third party services? Do you do you think about how you know? Do you say how easily can we swap this out if we decide to go in a different direction? Um, yeah, you do that, or you can like load test it and availability test it and see how long it's been in business and go look at. I mean, all of these services that are any good have status pages with lots of history have have customers who who are references you know and and right. so i don't think it's that hard to vet uh to vet these to figure out if they would work be okay so i i, I don't know like in the high risk category i mean i do think you know i'm a fortune 500 company i'm about to send like a million you know transactions a month through this service that you know just got out of y combinator last month and like you know doesn't have a website like i wouldn't do that but, you know, I think there are sort of standard vetting things you could do, uh, you know, and I think a lot of these services that, you know, I, you know, I would certainly recommend to anyone like Algolia or Cloudinary or Auth0, um, you know, these services have been around for years and years and years. They're big. So, yeah. yeah. Hey, everyone. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, New Relic. Now let's say you've got an incredibly complex architecture, which means monitoring takes a dozen different tools and troubleshooting means jumping between data silos and dashboards. We all know this pain and New Relic wants to change that. New Relic's designed everything you need in three products. Telemetry Data Platform holds all your data from any source. Full Stack Observability gives you one place to analyze, visualize, and troubleshoot your whole stack. And Applied Intelligence gives you automated detection and incident intelligence. Best of all, they're bucking the industry's love of complicated pricing to keep things simple and predictable. No more host-based pricing and no more constant upsell for more functionality. And you get one user and 100 gigabytes per month totally free. 
If you want observability made simple, check out New Relic at newrelic.com. So, um, so if you did have to swap out a service, right, or even not that, maybe you just say, look, we need to upgrade some piece of the system. Something's a little bit out of date. Maybe there's a new feature that's added. You want to go in and refactor, um, or maybe you just have something that's not running efficiently and you want to refactor. You've mentioned refactoring a number of times. Now, I know I've had a CEO in the past. I've had some interesting CEOs that I've worked for. One of them who still loved the idea of counting lines of code as if that was some sort of an asset and not a liability. Um, and then I had another one who would say that if we leave uh, engineers to their own devices and we don't give them specific projects, that they would just refactor all day. Is that, I mean, obviously you can't refactor all day, right? You need to, you need to build some new things every once in a while. Um, but from your, from your point of view, like refactoring is a really important part of the software development cycle. Absolutely. I, look, I think this is a larger, there's a, there's a, like a, something that's higher level in this conversation, which is that um, if you have good technical leadership in your organization, your technical leaders will be able to, uh, I mean, what they're trying to do is get enough trust from the rest of the organization so that you can do things the way you think is best. And so all of these things, like if you, like any sentence that starts, like if you left the engineers to themselves is just an example that there's no leader who's managing the trust in the organization across the organization. And so, um, you know, I mean, like at branch, we don't have, a, we do not have a roadmap. We do not have deadlines. I mean, people can ask like, when do you think this thing is going to be done? But there's no like, there's like, there isn't, there aren't company-wide burn up and burn down charts. There aren't, you know, we don't, we, we do size things, but there aren't, you know, there isn't this like, well, you know, what day are, is everything that everyone's working on going to be done on? Like, we don't do that. Uh, we don't do that because it takes time. And so would you rather have it done sooner or would you rather have estimates that are wrong? <laughs> you know, right. and that's like, that's the reality. Like that's the choice right. that you're making. And so the only way that you get you know, the rest of the organization to say like, okay, I'm not going to ask you for a roadmap. And like, I ran into this a lot at branch because we've hired a lot of people who've worked at very large organizations at branch. They're like, well, I want to see the roadmap. And I'm like, well, there is no roadmap. <laughs> and they're like, what do you, what do you mean? You have to have a roadmap. You know, we sit down and we talk and we say, well, if I had a roadmap, if you really needed something done, like it's going to go to the end of roadmap. I'm sure that's what you experienced, right? You asked for something, how long did it take? Well, in my last company, it would take like nine months to get it done. I'm like, okay, we'll get it done in like two or three weeks. But the trade-off for that is there's no roadmap, right? right? Are you okay with the trade-off where you can get stuff done in two to three weeks instead of nine months, but there's no roadmap? Like, right. do you really want a roadmap more than you want like things done like eight months earlier? And uh, you know, people are like, hmm, there's not sold on it. Like, I don't know, I don't look like this is new. But if you can do this, if, if you can gain the trust by delivering software, I mean, this is why our agile is we come every week to deliver software. This is also like a lot of the accountability of developers and a lot of what serverless gives you is developers have control about we're going to deliver this stuff right mm -hmm. we don't have a devops team that blocks things we don't have a DevSecOps team that block things we don't have an operation team that blocks things right we have we build it we have automated tests we have some manual testing uh, uh people who are asynchronous and services that are asynchronous that will look at things occasionally um uh, we have, you know, smoke tests and we put things live, right? And everybody knows sometimes there will be bugs, right? Sometimes you can only catch these bugs in production. 
um, and we will fix them quickly and we will ship things quickly for you. And so in that world, then, if you live in that world of trust like that, um, then you get to do what you want to do on the tech side. And so it, you know, and I can tell, I totally agree with you, you know, developers don't want to refactor all day, but developers also don't want, you know, somebody breathing down their neck trying to get some, you know, trying to make them into a feature factory that they have no say in what's being done. And they're, you know, I mean, they're not allowed to clean up their room basically, right? I mean, this is what refactoring is. It's like, this is bad. And like, we should either, some new features came out in React, let's say that let us use them or whatever they are. But it's, this is, and this is not, this is the crazy thing about this is, this is no difference from like, different from like management in general, where you try to empower people to like have control over their space so that they can be more effective and happier, right? That's that's right. all it is really. Yeah, and you so you mentioned three things that like all tie something together for me. One of those was tests, one of those was trust, um, and the other one was uh, feature factory. And I had, a, I had a consulting client, I went into this consulting client, they had maybe 10% code coverage. And the uh, the the CEO and the and the sort of the the, uh, the the COO did not trust the CTO because they had recently had a number of failures where they deployed something and the database broke. You know, there was a database change in there that was in staging but didn't make it to production. Right, standard stuff happens if you don't have a good process in place. So I go in and I'm looking at this this test coverage and I said to the CEO, I said you need to give the development team time to add test coverage and add some additional tests in so that you know you can you can be confident when we launch a new uh, update that we're not going to break something and and then people are going to get mad but the important thing was is they wanted to pump out features they had a ton of different clients that needed very specific things it's like you quickly went from being a software company to being a custom web development company it almost seemed like but again, those things where not giving your team time to build the things they need to make sure that the process is solid, that's going to erode trust. Then when you don't have the trust and then you keep pushing them to deliver feature after feature after feature without the time to go back and clean those up, without the time to ensure that everything is automated, um, you just that's a huge recipe for disaster. And honestly, I, I don't know many companies that I've consulted for or worked for that I haven't seen that type of vicious cycle over and over again. Yeah, I agree. I mean, most, I mean, I think the vast majority of companies that do software development do it very badly. Uh, another way to say this is I think the gap between the top, you know, one, five, one to five percent of, of organizations in software development are like, you know, dramatically, there's a chasm between them and the average. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so as a, a co-founding CTO, or as a CTO, you've done this a number of different times. Um, you mentioned things like no roadmaps, you know, giving users or giving your developers time to refactor, um, you know, th things like no deadlines, no burn downs, a couple notes I have here. Um, what else, like, what else do you, what else do you do? Like how, what, if you're running a company, which you are, but if you're running that, if you're, if you're advising someone else to, to manage their developers and their development team, what are those things that we have to change? I think maybe as a culture, um, so that we can again build up that trust. You know, get to a point where you're delivering good software, but also not 
stressing people out. This idea of developers working 70, 80 hours a week, like, hey, that was great in my 20s. I did that in my 20s and my early 30s. I, I don't want to have to do that anymore. I just want to be efficient. I want people to know that they can trust me to work on something and that I'll get it done. But like, what, what's that advice? Like, what, what, what does it need to look like? What does a modern development um, department need to look like or modern, modern engineering department? I, yeah, I love this question. And I feel like we don't like this question isn't talked about enough. Um, right. And a huge problem with this question and the answers is that people want to find excuses for how they do things today. Um, that's all they want to do. And they also want to nobody wants to make judgments in this space. Um, they <clears throat> they just want to say what I do is, you know, the way we do it is different and we couldn't that would never work here. Um, now, I will say, you know, I've come in and consulted with many organizations and my results consulting with them have ranged anywhere from like utter failure where I failed to affect any useful change to ones where I think I was impactful, but it took, you know, years and years to have, you know, really good effective change. So, I, I mean, I don't think that it is easy at all to go in and, 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 and make changes. And so, and I certainly don't claim to be that good at it. I think the I think the main thing that I would say to anyone, like as a starting point, is that we have we now have the best book ever written about this, which is Accelerate by Nicole mm -hmm. Forgeron. And it and it lays out four metrics and it gives you good ranges for those metrics. And um, and I do think it is a fantastic way to manage organizations if there are good metrics to manage them to metrics, right? I mean, like I've like marketing organizations, sales organizations, finance organizations, like managing to them to metrics works and they're happy to do it. And I think, and I believe that the four metrics in Accelerate are four really excellent metrics. And, and I think they're a great way to align. Like if you could get, so the last few times I've been asked this, I've said, you know, to the CEO, like you get on board with these metrics, let's get the CTO on board with these metrics and let's optimize to the metrics. And then that gives the, that will at least allow, that empowers the technical teams to figure out how they're gonna get there. Um, and those metrics are, you know, you need to be releasing multiple times a week, right? You need to, uh, you need to resolve errors quickly. You need to have a, a low rate uh, of failure. Uh, and low rate is just like less than 50%, right? So they give you these, these metrics. I do actually think the, the most important one is deploying multiple times a week. Um, right. I think that if you're not deploying multiple times a week, you should be. Uh, and I also think that, you know, you should be trying to get to a point where Friday deploys don't scare you, or at least, let me put it this way, um, you should be deploying frequently enough so that, and have good enough testing so that, you know, most of your bug reports are not in the thing you just deployed, right? right. I mean, in, in my experience at Branch, most of the bugs we find are bugs that have been in the code for a couple releases before they're found, right? right. Even regressions. Um, and so because of that, like, you don't need to fear the Friday deploy because like, it's already in the code, <laughs> like the bug, next bug you're fine is already there. Um, right. And also you're deploying such a small thing that like, it's not that big of a deal. Um, I'm totally sympathetic to like, maybe you shouldn't deploy something, you know, right before you like go to sleep or something. You know, like I get, I mean, like I'm not, I'm not opposed to that. And we don't, we don't do automated deploys at branch. We, we deploy several times a week, uh, but I think we've deployed like two or three times today. 
for example. Right. And I mean, you know, totally fine. So I, anyway, that that's that's where I would start from. That book is fantastic. Everyone should read it. And it's really important if you're trying to make an organization run better. Right. And so at Branch, so part of your development process, um, I think it's really interesting because, again, you you try not to uh, overwhelm your engineers, right? There's no working nights and weekends. It's not, I mean, I'm sure if maybe there's something critical, then then maybe that would happen. But what about using um, like ticketing systems? Like how do you use ticketing systems at Branch? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I really don't like Jira. I mean, I've used Jira a lot in my past. Um, there's, there's a really good article by John Evans. Um, I think he's at Resendi uh, that he wrote in TechCrunch uh, where he, 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 he wrote about how Jira is terrible. Um, and when I first read it, I was like, he's totally wrong. And then like over time, I've come to think that it's one of the better articles on it. And so we use GitHub and GitHub projects and issues. And this is a classic case of where we started using it in a certain way and it didn't work that well. And we used retro to, and so there was a lot of like, well, maybe we should use Jira. And I was like, okay, I want, just prove to me that this won't work, right? Like yeah. I am down with using you know, and we got into the linear beta and stuff like that. But I was like, I really yeah. don't want to use Jira, but like, I will use Jira if you guys say to use Jira. I just like make it like force it. Um, and so I actually hired a PM who had never been a PM before because I didn't want to bring, I, I, I generally have this thing. I don't like senior developers or senior PMs because in general, I find that all they're going to do is like bring whatever process they had instead of like right. looking at what's great about what we do. I mean, I know this isn't, it's not all of this, not all senior people everywhere, but like, I think that, I mean, I've experienced that in my career. Senior people don't look at what you're using. They just are like, okay, we're going to change over to like, however I did it last, the last right, time. Right. And so, um, and so there's this, and so, so I brought in a PM who'd never been a PM. And I was like, look, like we're going to, you're going to use retro and we're going to use retro to figure out what we don't like about what we're doing. And we're going to try to fix it. And we're going to try to use GitHub and GitHub projects and issues. And if it doesn't work, like, we'll know why. We'll know the right. limitations. And so we're in like iteration, like, I don't know, six. And like, it works really well. Like we have a super functional way of using GitHub projects and issues to like do everything we need to do, look at statuses, everything. All right. And so you mentioned that you don't do sprints, right? And burn down charts and some of those other things. So when somebody gets a ticket, so how does that work? Do you assign someone a ticket? Do they get a ticket themselves? Like how do they take multiple tickets? Are they like dumped in a batch on them and say, get these done by the end of the week? Or again, you said no yeah. deadlines, but how does that work? Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and one thing, one thing that I'll add is that I don't like the thing that I don't like about accelerate is that it doesn't, it, it, it is only concerned with work being done when the work is done, the development work is done. How does that get live and stable? Like that's mm -hmm. the, that's accelerate. There's Good an point. entire yeah. other book to be written on. Um, there is a business problem that needs to be solved with custom software development or, or, or something by the, by the software, the team that does software development. How do you get to the code is done, right? That work right. is done. And so, so it's useful to talk about, you know, the process that we use on for this is we we, re we really require the business to state problems, not solutions. You can give solutions as examples. And again, this is an example of like, we have trust. So we get mm -hmm. to define the process. When the trust breaks down, we lose control over the process. But our process is 
you help us understand the problem you're trying to solve and potential solutions to it, maybe, if you want to give them. We, it, th that goes to our designers. And our designers yeah. are going to come back and multiple times a week, there's a designer review meeting and you're going to get to go look at the designs and you can approve them or not. Okay. You don't get to bring designs like as a business stakeholder, you can't go say, I need a button here and it's this color and needs to say this. You don't get to say <laughs> that. Right. You can say, I want to solve this problem. And one way to solve the problem might be to put a button here in this color or whatever. But eventually you learn, like, it's not even worth telling them that because they're going to design what they want to design. So, so, I'm just going to tell you what, so I'm going to get really good, which is what you want this, the business stakeholders to do, right? You want them to get really good at, at helping you explain what problem they're trying to solve, right? Right. And then the designers deliver designs, okay? When it, once a design is accepted, could be the first design, could be the 85th design, right? So there's this, there's a, the, the process is the designers get to propose whatever, but the business stakeholders accept the design. And so either they accept them or they don't. And so you can, and sometimes it gets a little tense. It's okay. It works. You know, as long as you learn how to disagree with people, which is a skill everyone <laughs> needs to have, right? And work through disagreements, right? So once the design is set, um, our designers design in Sketch and they use Envision for interactions and they export to Zeppelin. Zeppelin's mm -hmm. amazing because it gives you uh, all of the, you know, sort of margins and fonts and things. So you don't have to, you don't have to eyeball something and try to figure out, you know, what the, yeah. what the CSS should be. So, but when a developer gets a task, you know, that ticket has the designs. Um, and so they get just work the designs and they've, you know, they've probably been, well, and, and actually before they get it, there are weekly, I mean, basically like sprint planning meetings, except there's no sprints, right? So every yeah. week we try to go size and talk about, all of the tickets that might be worked by someone before the next weekly meeting in which yeah. we will do the same thing again. So that's all. I mean, it's like, it's not that, you know, I mean, this is like, right. We've got a method that's working. It's sort of Kanban E, yeah. we, but we steal the ceremonies we need, but this is like agile, right? We're just trying to figure out like, what's the best way to get what we want. And then anybody who, and then what's great about retro is that we bring up like, you know, retro concerns are things like maybe like um, I when in demo, sometimes the business stakeholders seem like they're shocked by what they got. Like what happened? Like it yeah. seems like they should have been like they accepted that design. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, or like you'll get those. And so and so then that prompts somebody to think about how could I revise this process? How could I clean this up? Was that a one off? Right. But it's I like that. Like that's the, those are the types of things that we have in retro as opposed to retro being, um, you know, I, I think when we started retro and when GitHub projects wasn't fully working, it was a lot like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be working on. I did yeah. this thing, but like I did it and like totally wasn't set. So like, and people were like, that's not what we want at all. Like, so I don't like, you know, as a developer, you do a lot of work, you throw it away. And so like, we don't actually do that. Like I would say today, most of the work that's done, it's done, it's right, it goes out the door, it's small in scope, we watch it, and then it, it iterates on it. Hi everyone, I wanna take a minute to thank our sponsor, Epsigon. Epsigon enables teams to instantly simplify, visualize, and understand what's happening within their complex microservice architectures. With their comprehensive, lightweight auto instrumentation, users are able to eliminate the gaps in data and manual work associated with other APM solutions, providing significant reductions in issue detection, troubleshooting, and resolution times. 
Epsigon aggregates, unifies, analyzes, and correlates data from all the third-party tools you love, delivering a single pane of glass for understanding serverless, containers, Kubernetes, and more. Engineers now know when something is wrong and can immediately trace issues to root cause before they affect production. Increase development efficiency and reduce application downtime with Epsigon. As a special for Serverless Chats listeners, if you try out Epsigon and connect your first trace today, they'll hook you up with one of their awesome t-shirts. Check it out at epsigon.com slash serverlesschats. That's what I was going to ask you about um, in terms of scoping. So, uh, I mean, one of the biggest problems I've seen when you use a ticketing system is someone will say something, you know, there'll be a job in there that'll say, you know, uh, move this button five pixels to the right or rename this button, like something simple, like small scope. And then the other one will be like, you know, build a new, um, you know, billing system, you know, sort of like very, very large scope projects. So what... What's your process in terms of, of sort of downscoping things to, to get, you know, to get to the right level of work so you don't have an engineer stuck in a back room for three months? Yeah. Yeah. So one, so, so, so there are a bunch of tactics here. One of them is in, when you have trust, you can convince your stakeholders to downscope themselves. And so at branch, we have a saying, we actually have our branch roots, which are like, the, the sort of principles, cultural principles that we have. So, and that we say a lot. And so one of them is what's the V1? And so this is like endemic language throughout branch, but uh, you know, essentially somebody comes in and we ask like, well, is this enough for the V1? And everyone's on board with this because they understand that one, it'll get out faster. And two, when they wanna make changes to, like we all recognize you're gonna wanna make changes to it. Right. And so that's this is the delightful thing about about everyone bought into what's the V1. So if you can get that, that helps downscope. Of course, sometimes the V1 is large, right? So I think it's very important. And so one of the rules that we have is that you need to anything large, you got to build a release schedule and you got to release at least every two weeks, preferably every week. And so and so we'll we'll have a branch. So we will have branches that live for two weeks, let's say. Um, now we, we run a mono repo, um, and we do a lot of, we use Git town, which is like an open source, like thing that makes it easy to, I mean, it's like any of those, like GitFlow, whatever, but it yeah. allows you to merge trunk to branch, you know, very easily. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we tend not, I mean, we have, mer obviously we have to resolve some merge conflicts, but you know, we, we do our best to make sure that, you know, we have a couple different teams. So we do our best to make sure that like, there aren't multiple teams working on the same code at the same time yeah. right um and uh you know and then and then we have people collaborating and we you know you do some sort of planning so you don't collide into everybody but you know we use feature flags to 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 release things uh so that you know they're out there but not live um and so i think there are a bunch of tactics there um but you know in general that's the strategy i think another thing that we usually do is if you are working on something that's that's going to be like a week or two that you put at least two developers on it and they'll pair they'll split up the work or whatever but it tends to be that that tends to be very good in a lot of different ways to have that extra you know number of people to have you know somebody gets sick um, and then also to have like a focus, like we care a lot about this, it's big. And so like, we're devoting a lot of time to it. Right. And it sounds like that provides a lot of transparency um, where everyone can kind of look. So those business stakeholders and, yep. and they can go in and they can say, you know, this project is, you know, 50% done or it's, it's in someone's queue or whatever. How do you push back 
against business stakeholders though or the stakeholders when they do push something like oh we really need this feature i really need you to prioritize that is that something where again i know the trust is a big piece there but as the cto or as you know i don't know if you have engineering managers but is that something that you really push back on the business side of things no i mean this is the this is the benefit of not having a roadmap so like yeah if you if you're like i really need this then sometimes there's a conversation with the other business stakeholders Right. I always find that like complete like transparency solves so many of these problems. Right. right. Like and I've worked with so many CTOs who like to hide information. I was consulting for the CTO is like, I really don't like to let my vendors know everything that's going on. And I was like, you're an idiot. Like, tell everybody <laughs> everything. And then like and if they're if they're bad people, don't work with them. But like, it's crazy to hide information. So, no, like if someone's like, I really need this then I go make sure that the other stakeholders are okay with us moving that ahead. I mean, one rule we tend to have is I won't interrupt a developer working on anything, right? Mm -hmm. So the best I'm ever gonna do for you is put it up next, right? Yeah. And it's gonna go up next for the appropriate developer or developers, which could be lots of them, or in, in some cases it might be like, there's one person who should do this. Yeah. And so you're just gonna have to wait till they're ready. Um, you know, and I, I can't, I think very occasionally, like for each developer, maybe once every six months or something, we might interrupt them, right? We might say, yeah. hey, can you just put down what you're working on? And we really got to fix this thing. Um, usually it would be a bug, right? Right. Um, right? But that's very infrequent. And so everybody gets that. But, you know, in general, everyone's primed. I got to tell you, if you're a business stakeholder and you know that something you really care about can be done in about a week, if it needs designs, maybe two weeks. Mm -hmm. Like if you've worked anywhere else at any other organization, you're like, I'll take that. You know, yeah, exactly. I don't know what other weird <laughs> processes you have, but like that's fast, you know? Right, right. Yeah, no, and I, I so I, I think that is, uh, I don't know, I think that's just amazing that that idea of, of having, you know, uh, business stakeholders that understand um, what the processes are within the engineering organization and having that leadership, I think that's the most important thing, having the leadership within that engineering organization to really go to bat for your uh, engineers, build up that trust, have that history of delivering things. Um, you know, that just, that's, of course, I think it's a fantasy world in a lot of organizations, right? <laughs> I think they can get there, um, but uh, I think the vast majority of organizations aren't quite at that level yet. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the one organization that I really helped go from like no ticketing system, all tickets on whiteboards, um, terrible communication, uh, business stakeholders like walking into the developers, you know, offices and like sitting over their shoulder while they worked on stuff. I mean, that it was it was no testing, um, right. you know, a million and a half lines of PHP uh, in the application. <laughs> one page took like seven minutes to load on average stuff like that in a, in a SaaS product lots of people were using i mean it, it was not in a good place and like you know they're now like three years later and i mean they had it i mean we brought in a consulting firm that was really good um that really collaborates with you um and you know but everybody there was like i want help right i mean yeah. the, i think the biggest challenge i mean i know that the biggest challenge to fixing and making an engineering organization go from like, let's say not compliant with the accelerate metrics to compliant is most of the people in that organization saying, I want help and I know it's not good. And I'm, and I'm willing to listen to people who aren't me, you know? Right. 
Um, and like, until you get to that point, obviously you're not going to change anything. Um, yeah. but you know, and, and I mean, it, there's so much around trust here that, that matters. And, and I, I, this didn't, I mean, it really helps to be the technical co-founder. It really helps to be one of the first two people in the company on day one. And so you predate everybody else like that helps right. a lot. Right. Um, but it also, I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't mean like I've held lots of meetings in which, um, I have explained, like, this is how we do things. What questions do you have? And people going, I don't get why you do this. Like, why can't I do this thing? Right. And I, mm -hmm. and, 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 and explaining like, well, you're right. Like, if you look at it from that perspective, it seems bad, but here's why, you know, yeah. like one of the, one of the, one, one of the concerns that I get a lot is because you won't let me specify designs. Um, I'm reliant on those designers to come back and like, and they get to make whatever designs they want. And so like, I mean, like I could be waiting forever for something. And I was like, but have you, <laughs> you know, like, is, yeah. is this happen in practice? <laughs> you know, yes, you're right. Like it's a theoretical concern. Um, but I've had, you know, I've probably spent, you know, over the past two or three years, I've probably spent like 15 to 20 hours. So not a ton, but in meetings, just, just, just asking people to vent about what they didn't yeah. like about it and just explaining why, why we did what we did, you know, or why we do yeah. what we do. Well, that's why I like uh, junior devs because you can just bend them to your will usually and say, no, this is how <laughs> it's, it's awesome. It's so awesome to take someone who's like not had a lot of experience and they come in and they're like, well, everyone's kind of happy here. We yeah, only work right. like 40 hours a week. Uh, no deadlines. You know, I get to kind of just work. I'm not in a lot of meetings every week. Okay, I'll do it however the hell you tell me to do it, you know, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, all right. Awesome. So I just want to ask you one more question because this is something I am always interested to see. And again, because you use so many third-party services and, and you've been fully serverless, like you said, for a couple of companies now, where is where is serverless going and this is kind of a cliche question but five years from now right is is serverless just going to be part of the cloud i mean are we just going to not even think about it is there going to be a distinction between um you know how what we consider serverless and what we don't i mean all of these major cloud providers are creating these kubernetes man, uh, kubernetes management systems where you're not even going to manage kubernetes anymore so it's just going to be kubernetes but you're not technically going to be managing kubernetes you're just going to be using Knative on top of it or whatever it is. So it's like going to go away. Is it going to abstract away? Like, are we getting closer to that anyways? We're just these public cloud providers are going to take over the management and serverless is just going to be the way forward. I mean, I like, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think one, you know, never underestimate uh, engineers desire to keep doing the, the things the way they have been doing them or to make iterative improvements. Um, so like if you were managing VMs with Terraform, and and your job was to manage VMs with terror. I mean, this is the problem. I talked about the Oracle DBA, and I think Simon Wordley talks about this a bit. But like, we now have a whole like the new Oracle DBA is probably DevOps, right? <laughs> right? So you just you just built up a big DevOps team. Well, I don't think you're leaving containers or VMs until that team is right. gone. Um, and I don't and your prod infrastructure runs on those. So I, you're in like a bad place, you know? I mean, you could, like you hired me as like a CTO in an organization, you dropped me in and, and all your prod was running on Kubernetes and there are like, you know, three people who understand how it's set up and like, it's all, it's kind of brittle in places, you know, like that's a tough place to be in. Like you're gonna be there for many yeah. years. Um, and a lot of people are like jumping into that right now. So, um, 
You know, I don't, and I think VMware is out there and has a lot of incentive to, to drive that and is a very competent organization that will continue to proliferate that. Um, I also think there's like a huge debate about what is serverless and what are good serverless architectures. And, you know, when I go out and talk about serverless, there are a lot of senior devs in the hacker news world who are like, well, you just stitch a bunch of APIs together and I don't want to do that. Right. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, I, I live in a world where all at branch, we only hire front end developers. Like I went out to try to find like, like I, to try to see, can I find a senior developer I wanted? And I, and I advertised for a software development leader and like 100% of the resumes. That, and I said, you know, I need, you need to have a year framework, develop a year experience, not necessarily in your job, but just a year experience developing in a modern JavaScript framework. And like no applications that I got had that. And I was like, okay, all the front end developers are, are selecting out. Right. And all of the back end developers are, you know, selecting in and then they're not qualified. Um, and so and so, you know, I really believe in this full stack front end developer. I really believe in stitching these APIs together. I mean, I believe very strongly in all of those things, but I don't think that there is a lot of acceptance on that at all. Um, but you asked me about the future. I think the future is a service that is like draft bit. So draft. And I think this is the this is. Like, I don't really believe in no code mm -hmm. uh, as for interfaces, because I think in the end, you're going to want to customize the interface. Right. Okay. Like that is the one thing everyone is going to want to do. And that is the, that is a place which, which is going to pay off in every organization to customize the interface to your specifics. And the idea you can do that through drag and drop. I just, I haven't seen yeah. it, but draft bit is this interesting product that lets you almost like drag and drop, build a react native app but it compiles to React Native. So you can eject it to React Native. Mm -hmm. So you can build it there. And when you reach a point where you're like, I got to customize this more, learn React Native, and then you keep going. And so I, so another way to say this is, if you look at the future, the future is just better higher level abstractions that compile down to lower level uh, functional code that you can work with. Yeah. And so, because if you build the version that you can't compile down to code, but is like totally proprietary, right? Which is kind of like the air tables of the right. world, right? What you what you have is fundamentally proprietary. Until you give me the ability to like do extensive modification in code, I'm gonna have to leave you, right? You're not, you're, I'm gonna outgrow you, right? Or you're gonna be an internal tool, right? But I think that, so I think this is the future. I think AppSync, built on what Firebase did. It's a great high level abstraction, but you have full access to customize everything you'd care to customize about it. EventBridge, another version of this that's like fantastic. Um, you know, so we have this great history of these things. We're seeing them on the front end more and more. And so that's what I think the future of highly effective development is. But I think the challenge is that 80 plus percent of organizations are gonna have a bunch of people working for them who are going to resist this tooth and nail because it means they will have to throw out what they have invested so much in today. Right. right. Yeah. That's a, that's a, yeah, I totally agree. That's amazing. Um, well, listen, Joe, thank you so much for uh, chatting with me and sharing your immense knowledge and not just serverless, but also um, just managing an organization. Honestly, if, if there's any, you know, uh, I guess technical leader out there right now, read Accelerate, listen to the advice Joe just gave, push back on your CEO. It's not about lines of code. It's not about a feature factory. It's about 
having a healthy, productive, trusting, uh, transparent organization where everyone's working together to just, like you said, make themselves better. So if, um, if people want to contact you, uh, how do they do that? Twitter, uh, at Joe Emerson. All right. And then you have a blog to emerson.org, right? Yep. And, um, and then branch insurance is just ourbranch.com. That's right. Awesome. All right. Well, I will get all that in the show notes. Thanks again. Thank you. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Joe Emerson for being my guest this week and to our sponsors, New Relic and Epsigon. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 73. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.